Well, good morning. I want to invite you to take your Bibles out, if you would, please, uh, to Luke's Gospel. It's about four-fifths of the way back, near the back part of the Bible, Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, we have extra ones there in the seat rack in front of you. They should say NIV, Black Bibles there. Just pull them out to page 715. We're going to look at, again, as we learned earlier, uh, Mary's song today. And uh, as you're turning there, one of the things that I want to just invite you to do, we're going to look at one 46 through 55, by the way, in Luke's Gospel. But as you're turning there, I want you to think about the age of the young lady that says these words. Most scholars believe at the most she was 14 years old. She could have been 11, 12, 13, 14. This is Abby Taya. She's part of our youth group, and Abby is 14 years old. So we've asked her if she would to read this scripture We want to ask you to listen, follow along, and let's give a reverent heart to listening to God's word, okay? And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Abby. Now, today is the first day of Advent. Did you know that? Some of you are saying, what's Advent? And I relate. Uh, When I was a kid, my parents taught us about it, but this past week, I was playing tennis with a guy that doesn't go to our church, and he knows I'm a pastor, so he says, okay, first Sunday Advent this Sunday. I'm going, oh. And I said, do you know what Advent is? And he goes, nope. And I said, well, I've been studying this, so it's not that I'm smarter, but... It comes from the Latin word adventus, which means arriving. It means uh, someone's coming, arriving, or their arrival. And so if you're following along in the notes today, here's what I hope you'll see about Advent as we kick off this Advent series. Advent means God's Son, Jesus, arriving here in a human body. Advent is God's Son, Jesus, arriving here in a human body. And as we heard earlier, We're starting a new series called Songs of Advent. Advent starts today and it goes through Christmas. So for the next several weeks, as you can see here on the screen, we're going to be studying the different songs from Luke's gospel uh, that are found there. If you're following along in the notes, Luke, in his gospel, the first couple chapters, includes four responses or songs. Sometimes over the years, uh, leaders in the church have called these songs. We don't know whether or not they became songs, and were set to music, or these people actually uh, had a heart that was so filled up that it was like a song. But again, we're going to see these different uh, responses and songs. If you see on the screen there, we're going to look at Mary's song today. Next week, Steve's going to teach on Zechariah's song, and then Simeon and the angels' songs. This will help prepare us for Christmas Eve and Christmas this year. So as we do that, here's what I hope you'll see in every week of this series is that Jesus' arrival, if you're following along, Jesus' arrival calls for a response. His arrival 
His coming to earth calls for a response. What will mine be? What will mine be? Now today, as we look at Mary's response or her song, some of you grew up and you were taught that this song has a name and it was called the Magnificat. Again, taken from the Latin word to magnify and so it's called the Magnificat. And uh, what we're going to see in this passage are several of the things that this teenage girl had learned about God. And what we're going to learn is that she had learned a lot about God. And in a way, we knew she knew more than just about God. She knew him. And that comes out. And so I don't know where you are today. Maybe you're here and you don't know a lot about God. And you're here because you want to learn more about God. Maybe you know a lot about God, but you don't know God. And you'd like that to change this Christmas season. And what I hope happens is that as we look at this passage today, you'll just be gripped by what this, what God taught this young girl. And um, before we study it, what I want to do is just tell you that the man, um, when I was realizing that God was calling me to be a pastor, I've told you many times how much my dad and other people had influence on me, my youth leaders, my Sunday school teachers. But what really happened in my early adulthood is there was a man named Kent Hughes. And Kent told me one day, he said, Jeff, whenever you go to preach, in your preparation, don't read commentaries first. Don't look at what other people say about this passage. Just spend time with the passage of Scripture and read it over and over and over again. He told me about one man who would never preach until he'd read it at least 50 or 60 times. And he said, soak in the Scripture and ask God to speak to you first and then show him how you're supposed to share that with other people. So this week, I took these 10 verses that Abby just read, and I read them over and over and over again the whole time, just saying, oh God, please show me what's in these words so that they're not just words, and then show me not only what they mean for my life first, but then show me what we might learn together as a church family this Thanksgiving season as we start Advent. And so that, what I want to share with you this morning are some of the things that jumped off the page for me or that just struck me as I studied this. And where we're heading is that I want you to notice that there are two ideas that are kind of paired in her song that I want to come to. And so we'll look at that. But now, would you pray with me that God would be our teacher? Because I don't know about you, but I'd rather hear from God than a human being. How about you? So God, we don't know how this works, but as we gather together expectantly, we believe that by the power of your Holy Spirit, because of what Jesus Christ has done, you can speak to us. You can speak in the thought processes of our mind. You can come to every seat. You can convince us. You can convict us. You can encourage us. You can challenge us. And we pray that you would do that very thing with your word today. Thank you, God. Thank you that you care about every person in this room. Show us how to learn together. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so Mary's song. Let's look at this. Again, um, if you're following along, here's the background. Though a virgin, Mary's learned that she's to give birth to God's son. Though she's a virgin, she's learned that she's to give birth to God's son. Go figure, that is a medical miracle. If you're going to have a baby, most of the time, here's how it goes. You've got to lose your virginity to have a baby. But what happened is, is she still had her virginity, and the angel told her that she was going to actually have a special child. 
So if you turn back to verses 26 through 38, look at what it says. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Stop. If I would have said Rochester, Riverton, Chatham, some other town, you would have gone, huh, wonder what happened there. But when we say Nazareth, most of us go, never heard of it, don't care. But Nazareth was this little backwater town that was like nothing in most people's minds. In fact, in John's gospel, when this person hears that Jesus came from Nazareth, goes, Nazareth? Does anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, you, you know towns like that. So this is where Mary is. And she's a teenage girl in a man's world, and here she is. And God sends the angel Gabriel to talk to her. Verse 27, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin, since I've never been with a man. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. And so, again, though a virgin, she's to give birth to God's son. Friends, I don't know what you believe about Jesus Christ, but even in his arrival, even in his birth, he is like no other person that's ever lived on this earth. God was in Jesus as in no other human being. And we learned that, and Mary learned it too. Next, if you're following along, to make room for Jesus, Mary has to trust and adjust. In order to make room for Jesus in her life, not just in her body, she's got to make adjustments. Some of you have gone through that. But also, she's got to adjust, she's got to trust that God knows what he's talking about. Now, we tend to glamorize this whole Christmas story. We tend to make it seem like CNN was there, and it was just like this like, incredible story, 15 minutes of fame. It's just not true. This happened in an out-of-the-way place to a person that wouldn't even have registered on most people's popularity. And when this happened, this out-of-the-way moment, what it created for Mary was huge. Think about this, friends. If she goes to her friends and says, I'm pregnant, and she's not even married yet. In those days, friends, different than our culture, that would have been greeted with shame. And she would have also had to explain, you know, I've not been with Joseph, so how could that have happened? And they would have gone, you're making this up. Not only would she have been misunderstood, but she would have also been just looked down on. All the other women would have looked down on her. Again, in some cases, she could have actually been up for stoning, for being unfaithful. 
So this was a huge thing. This just created chaos in her life. Let me just stop for a second. Some of you, Christmas is not a peaceful time. Christmas is a time of chaos. Maybe all year round, you've been doing okay, but at Christmas time, there's something about the tenderness of the year that memories that we've tried to forget come rushing back. Things that we are ashamed about come into the forefront of our minds. Our sense of crisis goes up even larger. I don't know what it is, but over the years as a pastor, this particular year, I am very conscious of some of the agony and pain and difficulty that some of you are facing. Some of you, it has to do with a job. Some of you, it has to do with finances. Some of you, it has to do with relationships that have absolutely been excruciating in your life or ones that you don't know where they're headed. Some of you, you have sinned against God in such a way and you are conscious that you're wondering if he could ever, ever accept you. So as you come to this Christmas, you don't have a song in your heart. You are in a completely different place than that. But Mary understood in the middle of this chaos that God can still give a song. And he gave her one. And it is powerful what she learns in all this. So she learned that part of making room for Jesus means that she needed to learn to trust and adjust. Some of you are conscious that Billy Graham just celebrated his 95th birthday. Now, maybe you've never heard of Billy Graham, but over the last 60, 70 years in our country, Billy Graham has been one of those faithful voices to preach God's word, even when it wasn't popular. And so when that happened, Billy Graham, in his 95th birthday, came out with a book called The Reason for My Hope. And in this book, there is a chapter, chapter 6, that was shared with me last week. Our ladies have a Sunday school class, and in that Sunday school class, they were looking at this book. So Trish is in that class, and she brought this home to me, and I read parts of this last Sunday afternoon. Listen to what Billy Graham says. Listen to the wisdom of how he looks at our world now. He says, do you live in a world all your own? Society today reflects the culture's craving for a designer world, one that suits every whim. We want things to go our way, according to our timeline, and at the pace of our own choosing. We want designer clothes, designer technology, designer homes and cars, even designer religion. We want either to simply belong to something or to belong to our own way. So, he goes on and says this, a leading research guru gave his findings. People nowadays say, I believe in God. I believe the Bible is a good book. And then I believe whatever I want. In the case of America, he writes, our country is moving in the direction of 310, 310 million people with 310 million religions. Whatever, whatever, has become a mantra for many, a trendy approach to a religion of belonging to self. And he goes on in these, chap these pages of this chapter to show how in the United States, people are designing their own religion. They're taking parts of Christianity and parts of other things and saying, I'm going to find out what works for me. I'm going to not make room for Jesus. He needs to make room for me. And I'm going to make him adjust to me. And if he doesn't adjust to me, then I'm out of here. I'm not interested. I'm looking for whatever will adjust to me because I'm the definition of what a good religion would be. And Mary, friends, Mary didn't do that. 
She goes, okay, in order for Jesus to come into my life, it's going to mean making room, and it's going to mean learning how to trust and adjust. Let me just ask you, if you were to evaluate the way you think of God and your relationship with God, are you into designer religion? Are you into trusting and adjusting to him as he shows us to do? There's all kinds of ways, friends. Some of us want God to adjust to our way of thinking about money. Some of us want God to adjust to our way about thinking about sexuality and relationships. Some of us want God to adjust about the way we think about getting things done. And Mary, here she is saying, I'm learning how to trust and adjust. So if you're following along, the next thing I hope you'll see in these verses is this, is that Mary chooses to magnify the Lord and all he has done. Mary chooses to magnify the Lord and all he has done. I love this. Would you read verse 46 and 47 as it's listed in the gray box with me, please, out loud? And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, what happened is, after she got the announcement from the angel, she goes to her cousin Elizabeth's house, and she stays there for three months. When her cousin Elizabeth, who had just gotten pregnant six months before herself and wasn't supposed to get pregnant, they meet each other. They have this incredible conversation. And Mary, who's probably been meditating on what God is doing in her life and in her, and the world around her, opens up in this song and she just says, look, from the deepest part of me, I magnify the Lord. I rejoice in God my Savior and what he's up to, what he's doing. And I'm learning how to trust and adjust my life to him. And it is, wow, it's a challenge of my lifetime. But I am learning to magnify the Lord. What does it mean to magnify something? Some of us, when we were kids, use magnifying glasses. And what that means is when you use a magnifying glass, does the thing get smaller or larger? Larger, right? So what she's saying is, I magnify the Lord. I love what Kent Hughes says about this. He says, the opening words, my soul glorifies the Lord, as some of your translations may say, are even more expressive of her elevation when rendered literally. My soul makes great the Lord, or my soul enlarges the Lord. Of course, God cannot be made any bigger, but he can be enlarged in one's life. The fuller our knowledge of his greatness, the greater our ability to enlarge him. And so she says, look, God is big. God has become big to me, and I want him to be the biggest thing in my life. And so she says, here's what I want to do. I want to think about all he has done. Now, I told you, I just spent time over and over again looking at this text. And if you did that, you might notice some things that I've missed. But here's what I noticed six times. She says, he has, he has, he has, he has. If you look in those verses, you'll see it there. Or she says, the mighty one has. So six or seven times, it's all about what God is up to, what God has done. What do you find yourself thinking about? Do you find yourself spending any time thinking about God and what he's up to? Do you find yourself thinking about what God has done in your life with gratitude? Have you thought about what he wants to do in your life? Mary found herself filled up with the greatness of God. And here's what I want you to see, friends. She became a bigger person herself because she understood that God was way bigger than her little world. 
Someone once said that a person who's wrapped up in themselves makes a very small package. Mary wasn't a small package because she was filled with the greatness of God in her life and her whole horizon began to expand. In fact, she didn't just think about her generation. She thought about other generations as well. So notice this. Though he's mighty, he's merciful to those who fear him. Though he's mighty, he's merciful to those who fear him. One thing I forgot to tell you is the word magnify. When she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, that means it's in the verb tense that means not just once. I don't just do it every once in a while. I continually do this. This is my daily habit, to magnify the Lord. I have learned that this is a great way to live, to be filled with his praise, to be filled with what he's doing, and to think about that, because when I do, it gives me a completely different perspective on life. But she says this. She says, Here's, although God is mighty, he's also merciful. And we just sang, holy, holy, holy. And I love that verse that says, holy, 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 merciful and mighty. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, blessed Trinity. He is mighty, yes, but he's merciful. Merciful and mighty. What's mercy? Mercy means that you are not given what you deserve. You're not treated the way you deserve to be treated. That means that God is a God who, although he is the most important person in the universe, and he could just flick us away like a bug, he has a heart of mercy for people, to those who fear him. When you hear fear him, what do you hear? Do you hear that he's ready to just hit you a good one? Or do you hear the word reverence? This past couple weeks, I, I got an email from a man in the church that said, hey, I've been listening to some stuff on the radio. The guy's talking about the fear of God. I have like no understanding what that means. So I tried to write him back an answer. But here's what I wrote in short. Fearing God is more about us being so grateful to God for all he's done for us that we're afraid of hurting him by disobeying him and being unfaithful to him. But there's also a part of fearing him that recognizes his distinctly superior greatness to ours. We are the creatures. He is the creator. We dare not be chummy or sloppy with his majesty. And therefore, God is looking throughout the earth with those people that are willing to be reverent before God, that are willing to say, God, in light of all of your mercy to me, I don't want to keep just hurting you. I don't want to keep, I'm more afraid of hurting you than I'm afraid of you hurting me. God, give me that kind of reverence for you. And that's what Mary had. Even though she was a teenage girl, through the teaching of her parents and through some of the influences in her life, she had that. And now we come to the part that I want you to see. What she says in these verses is this, is that he looks for two attitudes as he works in every, every generation. He looks for two attitudes as he works in every generation. Here's what I want you to see, two things. One, this song is not just for Mary's generation. This song, she says in this song, is look, this is the way you work. Your mercy is extended from generation to generation. That means that even 2,000 years later, God cares about what's going on in your life. 
That means that he is a God that is so mighty that he never goes out of style. That from generation to generation, his ways are the ways to trust. His ways are the ways that we need to adjust to. But he is great. And here's what he's looking for. As he scans the earth, he's looking for certain attitudes in people. And when he finds them, he blesses those people. And here's the two attitudes, hunger and humility. Now, about 16 or 17 months ago, during Vision Sunday, our church talked about these two attitudes, hunger and humility. And in case you wonder where I got this, as I was reading this passage over and over again, I came to verses 52 and 53. You see them there in the message notes? Let's look at them together and read them out loud. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Wow. Earlier he says, he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. In other words, maybe most people think that you're just a totally humble person, but when no one else is around, or maybe without anyone else knowing it, in your inmost thoughts, you think to yourself, I think I can run this show. I think I'm the big deal. I think God doesn't know what he's talking about. The Bible says is that God sees that kind of pride and he scatters those people so their plans do not come to what they think. He brings down proud rulers, but he lifts up the humble. He fills the hungry with good things, hunger and humility. And so this Christmas, I want to ask as you come to this season, where are you at? with hunger and humility. If you're following along, notice this. He fills the hungry, but sends the rich away empty. Where did Mary get this idea? There's a good chance that she got this idea from Psalm 107, verse 9. I listed out to the right. When she would be growing up, she would have heard this psalm or this song being sung, and she would have heard that very idea. But here's the idea. That the only people that God ever sends away empty-handed are those who are full of themselves. But when you and I actually say, oh God, I've been hungry for all the wrong things. I thought this would fill me. I thought this would finally do it. And I've gone after those things and I've been hungry for the wrong thing. I am hungry to do your will and to know you and your ways says Mary. And that kind of hunger, friends, the longer I live, the more I look for that. Back at Vision Sunday, I remember sharing with you that it was my daughter Natalie that helped me understand that spiritual hunger is unbelievable in a world like this today. I'm not talking about just curiosity. I'm talking about a voracious hunger for the Lord. And Natalie was saying to me one day, she says, Dad, when I come back from college, she says, I know Cherry Hills isn't a perfect place by any means. But she says, whenever I worship with the Cheriel's family, I've noticed that people, a larger number than usual, seem to have a spiritual hunger for God. When we open the Bible, they say, teach me what God says. They find themselves during the week saying, oh God, I want to know you better. I still don't know you like I want to know you. And that kind of spiritual hunger is palpable. Friends, you can tell when you're with someone who is spiritually hungry or someone who is spiritually indifferent. And we live in a country that's not only becoming more atheistic, we're living in a country that's saying, whatever, 
more and more and more. That kind of apathy and indifference is bound to happen when we put our trust in ourselves. But God stirs this kind of hunger, not just in 12 or 14-year-old girls, but in men and women all throughout the world. And I wonder to myself, are you one of them? Are you one of them this Christmas? Are you hungry? Friends, i got to just tell you, these two words I'm talking to you about, I don't know how well I'll get it across, but it is this idea of hunger and humility. If someone were to ask me the last 37 years of being a follower of Jesus, what the biggest takeaways are for me, I would have to tell you, it is learning that hunger and humility open more doors for God to work than any other. And he is looking for people to fill up with his goodness. So the question, if you're following along, is how hungry am I for you, Lord? How hungry am I for you? Or am I hungry for something else? Can I just tell you sometimes, I've noticed a hunger for anything but holiness. I've noticed a hunger in my heart for all kinds of cheap and superficial thrills. And they are what they are. But Jesus is trying to instill and stir in us this spiritual hunger. And so I wonder, do you have that? Matthew 5, 6, look at this verse. This is how Jesus opened the Sermon on the Mount in the opening verses. Let's read it together. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And the idea of they is they and they alone will be filled. Those that hunger that way. And so maybe you've said, man, Jeff, my whole life I've hungered for the wrong stuff. I haven't hungered for righteousness. I've hungered for anything, but I thought that's a dead-end road. That's a straitjacket I'm not interested in. But Jesus goes, oh, no, no, I flip things on their head. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Watch. And then look at Revelation 3, if you would. He says, you say, I am rich. He's talking to a church now. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And then he goes on and talks to them about how I want to teach you. But you know what? Some of us were here, we're going, I'm not hungry. I've got what I want or I'm figuring it out on my own. Friends, I just want to ask you, be hungry for the right things. Hunger for God. Hunger for what only he can do in your life. Jesus said, this is my food to do the will of the one who sent me. I am hungry to see God's kingdom come here on earth. I am hungry to do his will instead of my own. The second thing is he brings down the proud, but lifts up the humble if you're following along. This is what Mary sings. She says, here's what you need to know about God. Sooner or later, he's going to scatter and bring down the proud, but he always lifts up the humble in due time. He lifts them up. Look at Luke 14, 11, if you would. This is a spiritual law. It works just like gravity. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then, here's the question. Am I being humble with you, Lord, and with people? If you bring down the proud, but you lift up the humble, am I being humble? On my 20th birthday, and I'll tell you how old I am so you don't have to worry about the math, I'm going to be 53 next month. On my 20th birthday, my parents gave me a birthday card. I'm sure they gave me a gift or a check or something else. I just don't remember what it was. But I remember something they did on that card. 
They wrote at the bottom after saying some encouraging, loving words to me. First, Peter 5, 5 through 11. I've listed that out to the right in your notes. But first, Peter 5, 5 through 6 is what stuck with me. Now, friends, I've gotten a lot of cards, so have you. And they come and go, they get recycled. But 33 years later, these verses are with me every day, and I don't think I can take any credit for it, but look at what they say on the screen. Clothe yourselves. That word there means to tie on like you'd tie a towel on, like Jesus did when he washed his disciples' feet. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Put it on every day. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Would you actually say that phrase with me? For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, when you think about humility and pride and all that, what does that look like? Some of us think that to be humble means we go around saying, I'm nothing, I'm a worm, I can never amount to anything. And that's what a lot of people think humility is. But look at this definition by Fred Smith. I love it. Humility is not denying the power that you have. In other words, if you're smart in math, if you're really good at fixing things, if you know how to sing, humility is not going around saying, I'm a terrible singer, I don't know how to do math. No, that's lying. But humility is acknowledging that the power comes through you and not from you. And Mary understood that everything good about her came from God. That everything came from him and through him and therefore all the credit and praise goes to him. So why did those verses grab me when I was 20 years old? You want to know the answer? I am a proud, stubborn, willful, condescending person more than you probably could ever imagine. In my inmost thoughts, I struggle with pride every day. And I believe that I will struggle with pride until Jesus comes back a second time. But here's the good news. What I've learned is that God does oppose the proud, and I'm glad he does, aren't you? But he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, there is hope this Christmas for proud people like me. And one of the reasons I can magnify him is because he checks my proud spirit, and he teaches me that the way of being humble and teachable and leadable and correctable and changeable is actually the pathway for grace to flow through my life. And every year I've gotten older, he keeps bringing me back to the fact that when I'm not hungry, I can be hungry again. When I'm not humble, I can be humble again. And so he wants us to understand these things. What does it mean to be humble? Do not be wise in your own eyes. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. And when you and I practice that like Mary practiced that, we have a completely different song to sing in this world, hunger and humility. After that Vision Sunday about 16, 17 months ago, I didn't realize whether or not anybody would remember those phrases, hunger and humility, because I said, look, if our church has these two attitudes, we will become the kind of church that God's grace will flow through us, and even people that know all the bad stuff about us will be able to go, that's God's grace working in that church. 
So I talked about that. Well, anyway, a few months ago, over a year later, a couple in our church, their family was moving away to the East Coast, and so they came up after the service, and I just prayed a little sending prayer. I love to do that with people when they're heading to a new place. And before I prayed, I just said, you know, I hope your time here at Cherry Hills has been helpful. And this guy says, oh yeah, I'm a baseball coach. And he says, I've been teaching all my players how to be H2 guys. I said, help me with this H2 stuff. He goes, well, remember we talked about hunger and humility? I told these guys that if they'd be the kind of teammates that would be hungry and humble before God, we'd be a way better team. And so we've been trying to be H2 guys. I remember thinking, I got to remember that. So here's what I want to ask you this Christmas. Are you an H2 guy? Are you an H2 gal? Or instead, are you apathetic and proud and are okay with that? Because here's the closing question. Will I choose hunger and humility or apathy and pride? Will I choose hunger and humility or apathy and pride? Let me just tell you one quick story. We're about to take communion in a few moments. A few months ago, as I was standing, worshiping in a church service here, the Lord allowed across the ticker of my mind to come this thought, that I had been in some meetings in our church family, and I had powered up, and I had been proud, and I hadn't necessarily wanted to think about that. I'd kind of pushed that thought away. And the Lord got very specific. You ever notice that God can speak fluent you? He just said, Jeff, here's how it needs to look. Here's how you humble yourself. You write both those people and you tell them that you were proud and you're sorry. So I did. It took me a while to have the courage to do that. I need to be honest. But in the last few weeks, one of those people came up to me and said, I want to tell you my story. You have no idea, but I went through a terrible relationship with my ex-husband. I went through all kinds of things, and ever since then, I have been stuck. And when you humble yourself before me, it's not even completely related. Something broke loose inside of me, and I began to be able to trust God with a new trust. And I thought, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's no other explanation. It wasn't because I was so righteous. It's because he'll always bless hunger. He'll always bless humility when it's about him. So here's what I want to do. We need to magnify the Lord. You want to know how to move away from pride, apathy? Begin to magnify the Lord. He's knowable. You can know him. You can know him better. This Christmas, you can actually sing and glorify him.